Hello, we'd like to welcome you to our Workplace Violence 3 program today. Uh, our topic uh, is uh, threat scenarios, and we look forward to uh, having you join us. Uh, I am uh, uh, Charles Denham. I'm uh, going to be your, your master ceremonies today and take you through uh, what we're doing. This is our 202nd webinar, 202nd uh, sequential month uh, of webinars that we offer. And in this particular topic, uh, it's really, really critical, and we look forward to uh, sharing it with you. Uh, we want to remind everyone that is listening today or watching that we offer this program both as a video streaming from our website as well as uh, on um, on podcast. And so we're hopeful that uh, you can take advantage of that. Those that are watching on demand at a later date, you can go to our website at safetyleaders.org and be able to uh, download uh, the slides and watch uh, the content. Uh, just to set the context, in tw about 2006, 2015, we started a program called MedTAC, focusing on bystander rescue care. And then we launched, prior to COVID, an emerging threats community of practice for major medical centers. Basically, the things that keep people up at night, keeping leaders up at night. We've expanded it to higher education and to schools K through 12 as well, both the visible and invisible threats that uh, we run into. And workplace violence is one of the major, uh, one of these major threats. There are 30 of them that we're focused on, and we'll give you an opportunity here uh, in a moment to just remind you, and those of you that are listening to the podcast can go to www.safetyleaders.org. Those of you that are watching live may go to our website, and those that are watching the video on demand may go to the website. The 30 areas that we have on the screen for those in the podcast right now are the 30 areas of focus of this thing we call a community of practice. And one of them is uh, workplace violence, but we have a number of violent uh, uh, and uh, threats, workplace violence threats, but also threats covered. We have what we call a, a widget, a, a, a box at the bottom of the web page for this webinar. And for those of you that uh, qualify, we'd like to invite you to join our community of practice. Um, we are going to be covering in private sessions lot, a lot more detail about workplace violence, active shooter events, uh, targeted leader, uh, uh, lethal force incidents, but we don't want to give bad guys uh, that detail. And so we will uh, have people who wish to join us, please go to the bottom of the webpage where uh, you have joined us today. And those on the podcast and, and the on-demand video, you may join, but you, you're going to have to tell us the organization that you're with. And we'd like to know your topics of interest that you'd like us to cover both in our general sessions uh, for the public, as well as those uh, that are um, uh, that are in the private sessions where we cover a lot more detail. Just so you know, active shooters spend between 100 to 150 hours of preparation before they uh, uh, go on a killing spree at a school, a church, a university, uh, or a business. The Joint Commission uh, uh, on Accreditation has expanded the definition of workplace violence from purely physical to now an act or threat occurring at the workplace that can include any of the following, verbal, nonverbal, written, or physical aggression, threatening, imitate, uh, intimidating, harassing, or humili humiliating words or actions, bullying, sabotage, sexual harassment, physical assaults, or other behaviors of concern involving staff, licensed practitioners, patients, or visitors. 
We are applying this principle to higher education. We're delighted to have Randy Steiner with us, uh, who is an expert in this field and is one of our leading directors of emergency uh, response at one of our major universities. We'd like to draw those that are watching the video and watch it or watching live. Um, we have a slide that addresses our prior 2023 workplace violence series. We started uh, with work, our workplace violence one, uh, and we ex we covered this new definition of not only physical but then the non-physical, and then we have expanded uh, more detail regarding the non-physical in our last webinar. Today we're talking about the high-impact threat scenarios uh, that our that our organizations are are facing. We've also had prior webinars in prior years, so this has been a topic of critical concern to all of us. Uh, over uh, the past years, and we'd like to draw your attention to a number of those prior 90-minute programs, uh, which we have also converted to podcasts that may have a little dated material if they were a year ago or the year before, uh, but a lot of the, the, the frequency and severity of these issues uh, are uh, really just picking up speed, and uh, we believe that they're critically important. So for those of you that have not been with us before, we always start these webinars, these now over 200 monthly webinars that we provide for free by setting uh, our course with focus on uh, patients and families and now students and educators that uh, are not professionals in threat safety. And uh, we'd like to have Jenny Dingman uh, open for us. She is a longstanding patient safety advocate, having had a patient safety event in her home. She has been a steadfast supporter for over a decade uh, of this uh, area. She was a winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. Uh, and uh, she has been a major contributor uh, to a number of areas. And so we'll ask Jenny to kind of open for us. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. I'm really looking forward to today's program on workplace violence. This series is very, very important, and we all need to learn more and more about this as it's happening too many times in our country. I would like to thank everyone for being here today, and I encourage you to share the recording with your family, friends, and colleagues. I'm anxious to get started, so I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jenny. And Jenny will be uh, uh, on with us at the end of the program to uh, help us with uh, our reactions. So uh, on our slide, for those of you on the podcast, we have a number of experts uh, that have contributed to this series and are either recorded because they are very active in their jobs uh, uh, at the front line uh, or live. Uh, you've heard from Jenny. Vicki King will speak a little bit later, assistant police chief at MD Anderson and the University of Texas Police Department, John Nance, who is a longstanding aviation safety, patient safety, and now higher ed safety leader, who's also an ABC um, uh, journalist uh, on safety with uh, Good Morning America, Randy Steiner, who's on with us live. We're grateful, Randy, to have you there to kind of help us sum up with our reactions, who's uh, a longstanding leader uh, in this, a best-selling author, um, and a fantastic uh, community uh, leader here in Orange County and with the University of California, Irvine. We have um, Dr. Casey Clements in our prior webinars, uh, who is uh, not only the director of clinical practice for Mayo Clinic in Rochester, 
Winchester, but he's also in charge of safety and occupational safety for the Mayo Clinic, both an MD and a PhD, who we've called on previously to uh, help us with the topics of sepsis, as he is uh, also, uh, as he says, uh, a recovering researcher. So he's an emergency medicine doctor um, and with great scientific grounding. We have Chief Bill Adcox, who has uh, uh, been named number a number of times as one of our leading national uh, security leaders. He's the chief of police at the um, University of Texas Police Department in Houston, but he's also the chief security officer uh, for MD Anderson Cancer uh, um, uh, Center, where I had the honor of having some of my training. We have Dr. Gregory Boats, who is our clinical leader for what we call our MedTAC program on bystander rescue care. He has dual appointments as full professor uh, at both the University of Texas at MD Anderson as a critical care doctor and as uh, in the Department of Critical Care and Anesthesia, as well as an adjunct full professorship at the uh, Stanford uh, Medical Center, where he acts, at, where he did a fellowship uh, in simulation. He's also the medical director for the police department uh, of uh, the University of Texas and has uh, really been actively innovating in that space in this area. Uh, we just want to draw your attention to our, our social media, uh, which we will be uh, doing a lot more with in the, uh, in, in the next year. And we have that on one of our slides. So before we get started, we have got a, a full program and we're going to just move my, get me out of the way very quickly. We just wanna remind you of our purpose, mission, and values for those of you that are have uh, not been with us before. The purpose of uh, TMIT Global and our, and our global research testbed and our, our multiple programs is that we'll measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Uh, we've expanded to higher ed, that, so it's staff members, uh, educators, and the community at our major universities and small colleges. Um, we also work very closely with uh, the rural and small hospitals. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we under undertake. We always try to monetize the impact so that our CFOs and COOs can justify adopting new innovations. So it's important to really know the cost of innovating. Our core values are I care. They spell they, they, the the uh, uh, I C A R E stands for integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We try to live those values. Um, our disclosure statement for those of you that are on the podcast: we have none of our speakers have anything to disclose, and for those that are, are reading it, you'll see uh, our leaders of the entire series have nothing to disclose. Also. TMIT uh, Global High Performer Webinar Series has uh, received no direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support, uh, and we've never received any, and never will we receive any from healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device companies. Conflicts of interest, those of you are, that are in higher ed may not realize how critically important disclosure is, but we uh, want to really make sure that everyone knows that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, we have received no money from uh, those industries. Uh, the TMIT Global Research Testbed is comprised of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. We have about 500 subject matter experts that work with us over the last 39 years. This happened because we have continued to put on educational programs and those that are contributors join us and almost everybody we've ever worked with has joined our community of practice, which is really an honor to have them work with us. Um, over the 33 or 30 now six months of, um, of the coronavirus crisis, 
we developed safety programs for families and for major universities that couldn't move as quickly as we could on putting the science together for the 17 industry sectors named by uh, Homeland Security um, to uh, have to keep working during lockdowns. And so our global research test bed has just grown over that period of time. Uh, and we have, um, uh, we have uh, partners in every state in the union. Uh, during the COVID crisis, we undertook a, a thousand worker study uh, that focused on response, rescue, recovery, resilience, and readiness. We've expanded this now to focus on uh, safety, including workplace violence and family, uh, family uh, safety. Uh, and then finally, uh, we have had a number of articles in Campus Safety Magazine pertinent to this effort, and we'll be posting these articles on the web, on the page uh, for the webinar. Uh, for those in the, in the uh, podcast, we have written articles in Campus Safety on active shooters uh, events, rapid response teams to such events, AED and bleeding control gear that may be placed there, and also a family safety plan article. We've got a number of uh, four articles that are coming uh, in, in future issues of Campus Safety Magazine. Uh, the problem that we identified uh, about in 2015 for our MedTech program was failure to rescue, and we won't belabor it. Those that uh, are on the on the webinar and uh, on demand may see the leading causes of death for which Good Samaritans can save lives before EMS arrives. Uh, they include sudden cardiac arrest, opioid poisoning, and a number of issues, uh, and uh, our program uh, to deliver continuing education is through what we call CARE University. It's not an accredited university. It's our learning management system, and we deliver Stop the Bleed training and a number of uh, training modules to schools, universities, major medical centers, and families. Um, and so uh, our, our strategy is to build a community of practice and then develop courses that then allow us to identify competencies people need to learn and then help certify those that, that, that can benefit from certification. We're working with the insurance industry now to help reduce uh, the cost of premiums and get have people have an on-ramp uh, to be able to uh, have uh, uh, insurance for some of these really bad events. So now let's talk about these threat scenarios. Uh, for those that are on the podcast, we have 30 scenario, 30 categories that, for which we're focused on our threats. And a number of them in, include some of the recent ones, pandemic readiness, um, brand damage, but workplace violence is a really, really critical issue. So a couple of uh, operational definitions. Um, we describe inside and outside threats to be those that are uh, that that uh, are uh, we're subject to. We talk about reducing our vulnerability to the threats because a threat times the vulnerability equals the risk for harm. We just can't accept the fact that, oh, we're just going to be harmed and not prepare for that risk. So our strategy is to rebuild resilience. How do we build resilience to this and what can we learn about that? That. So for those that are on the podcast, I have a slide up where we've taken uh, the topics of the 30 areas we're focused on in emerging threats, and we've identified those and put them on a graphic so that then we can look at how many of them might be connected to each other. And in the old days, workplace violence, and Randy, I know when you get to speak, you know, we used to think about workplace violence being only physical violence, but now uh, we're seeing an enormous uh, uptick in verbal and uh, uh, the expanded definition of the Joint Commission. And if we really look at that expanded definition, for those on the podcast, we've highlighted in yellow 
those that aren't physical. And the expansion of this definition that we now are applying to higher education is an is is enormous group of additional incidents that aren't just physical violence. And so when we when we look at workplace violence now with this new definition, we're talking about violent acts against leadership. In a future webinar, we'll talk in more detail about the stalking of leaders and, and protective details, insider threats, those from the inside that have intentions to, uh, to have impact. We are seeing a lot of corporate espionage. We're seeing nation state espionage that's going on and it's harming our organizations and it's harming our safety. Intentional harm of patients or students or staff, financial harm to those that we serve, defamation or unfair press, preventive, and then preventable death or severe injury that could be uh, far beyond just physical violence. So now let's talk about our topic today. Uh, we're talking about impact scenarios. We have been working for 39 years in the area of patient safety and quality and aviation safety. And if you were to be able to look at impact on one axis and volume on the other axis, and you were to look at and segregate these into categories, those that are really grabbing a lot of press attention are the high impact, low volume, active shooter events, the lethal force incidents. There are high impact, high volume events, and they really we really focus on those. But then the sneaky ones are the low impact, high volume, things that are happening all the time that have, have minimal impact for the one incident. But all of a sudden, you start to wake up to the fact that you've got behaviors of concern that can lead to active shooter events and leader uh, stalking events and other things. So when we drill down, and we're not going to, I'm not going to read everything for the podcast and for those that are viewing, we have a, a number of scenarios, a, a huge group in the high impact, low volume, the active shooter events, the, the terrorism events, leader targeted events, suicide, insider threat, et cetera, the high impact, high volume events, domestic violence that can occur and spill over into the workplace, which is happening all the time and a number of very, very serious high volume, high impact events. But the low impact, high volume scenarios uh, with behaviors of concern, disruptive behavior, uh, and a lot of stuff that is now leaking into social media. And then when we look back at an active shooter event, we see that, that those, a number of those really need to be understood because they can convert to a lethal force incident, which we'll cover in detail today. Uh, we've asked uh, Chief Adcox, who, who was actually leading a program today and couldn't be on, to really talk about uh, these issues. And then we'll hear from John Nance uh, regarding this, uh, uh, this topic as well. So let's hear from uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox. He is the current Chief Security Officer and Chief of Police at MD Anderson uh, uh, Cancer Center and really a pathfinder in this threat safety science. So, Bill, thank you very much for being such a great leader in threat safety science. And uh, you've frequently been named as one of our top security leaders and really be, becoming a pathfinder for uh, the rest of us. Uh, we'd like to have you uh, uh, just give your message to organizations about the fact that this is really evolving and collaboration is critical. Well, thank you very much, for Dr. Denham, for doing this and again, having me on the program. Uh, let me first say that collaboration is is critical. Partnerships and collaboration are, are critical. There is no one size fits all. 
There is not one simple program that you can put in place and you're going to solve all your problems. Every organization is different. The culture is different. The size is different. The complexity is different. Operations are different. And as you know, healthcare is is a, is a is accumulation of many, many systems. And it's very tough when you're trying to integrate those systems and you're you're looking at the recent laws and changes, accountability, care act, and et cetera. But when you're looking at all these things, so you've got to have collaboration and you've got to have people engaged and involved. The key is, is have a commitment to getting in front of problems early. Utilize the threat safety science information. Utilize these, this threat assessment and mitigation approach. You do that through multidisciplinary teams, cross-functional groups. You do that with people talking to each other. You do it with both internal resources as well as external resources. You get you get professionals together. You talk about it. And making sure everybody is, is, is in tune with the fact that you're going to be looking at prevention first and you're going to be paying attention to the clues. So we're so appreciative that you've expanded and that our team and our community of practice and emerging threats has expanded from medicine and from healthcare and medical centers to uh, higher education, colleges, universities, and actually schools, K through 12. Are you surprised at how many common denominators occur in those environments? Not really surprised. I, I mean, there's a lot going on in our, in our world today. Um, Sadly, not all good, and we're seeing a lot of a lot of stressors and a lot of things happening. A lot of copycats. Uh, a lot of people are angry. Uh, that's why we always tell people, you know, we use the we use the term giving individuals a soft landing. Never take your fellow human being for granted. Just because you have the authority to, to for example, to terminate someone's employment for a cause, don't take it lightly. Making sure that that person's whole when they leave your organization is critical. Remember, you you you're dealing with human beings that are on the very stressed today. And when you look at these horrible events that are going on, and you you dig into those, you can see that there's some considerable areas in which we could have had uh, a different intervention that may, and I, I state that may have changed that trajectory. And that's what we have to be real careful with. And I got to tell you that that uh, uh, there are times when there's there's grievance collectors and there's people that hang on to grievances, and we've had cases that we've looked at that. Are, 20 plus years later, when the person acted out and did, you know, committed a, a terrible, uh, horrible tragedy. So, yeah, you, you have to be real careful that you're that you're looking at all the different, uh, you know, points of information and, 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 you know, who's doing what and making sure that you're you're really treating every human being you come in contact with with a great deal of respect. And, 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 and you still do your job, but you do it in such a manner that everybody remains whole. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Uh, we have the graphic of the evolving set of scenarios, the impact scenarios before us. It's growing. Uh, the definition of workplace violence is expanding. And now as we're expanding from higher ed to schools, et cetera, uh, it's critical, isn't it, that we keep watching each of these quadrants and that they can evolve? It is critical. What we do know is that we've worked on this for so, a number of years, as you know, Chuck, and, and it's important that we look at these and we continue to get better at dealing with those. Um, the real critical quadrant, obviously, is the top left quadrant. And about half of that quadrant you can really have an impact on. But if you spend your time in that high impact, low volume area, because things that you don't look at very often, you're not dealing with very often, you probably are not going to be very well adapted at dealing with it. If you get into that quadrant and you get you get very good at it and you have the right processes and the right procedures and systems in place, 
you can pretty much deal with the rest of those those quadrants, uh, uh, which at any given time, things can move from one quadrant to another, just depending on what's going on. But really, your top left quadrant is where you need to really get get really attuned at dealing with those. Uh, because anything that's low volume, you're, you're not doing it. Repetition and, and in life, when you're doing something a lot of times, you generally get pretty good at it. And if, and if you're seeing something over and over, you're going to get adept at it. So if you have a really high impact event, but doesn't happen very often, just be prepared for it. And if you do that, you can you more than likely you're going to have a better uh, ability to prevent it. And if you cannot prevent it, you're going to go to your secondary prevention, which is to reduce the damage. Bill, you've given us some really practical advice about what uh, a medical center or a university might do with their local police force and perhaps offer a grant to help develop competencies in the local police force. You want to expand on that? Well, certainly. When we talk about every organization different and, and different sizes and capabilities, you know, there are smaller uh, medical operations that, that might consider giving a, a grant to the local law enforcement that they're teaming up with. And in that grant, they, they get training, whether it's the Homeland, Homeland Security Department or go off to the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and get certified at, at threat management in order to be able to look at these things. And then you have somebody out in the community that you can pull upon as part of your team. You know, enter into local agreements, whether it's an MOU, it's an interlocal government agreement, whatever it takes. And then you bring the right people together and you have multidisciplinary cross-functional team, a behavioral intervention team. And you're working together and you've got your outside resources. Because remember, every hospital, every business, every organization is, 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 is akin to being a city of its own. I mean, you have your internal functions, you have your internal databases, you have your internal you know, stimulus that's going on, your internal culture, uh, different levels of information. HR has a set of information. Management has information. Stuff is coming up in your IT security. Stuff is coming up in your risk area. There's all these different areas that you're seeing different information. And if all those disparate points of information are not correlated and are not looked at so that you can, what we call connecting the dots so that you can get out in front of a potential problem, um, you, you could have a, a, a tragedy waiting to happen. So again, having the external expertise, whether it's your local law enforcement, your local government entities, as well as internally having your multidisciplinary team together and working together with the right agreements in place uh, is, 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 is the absolute starting point in order to get in front of these problems. Well, thank you, Bill. We really appreciate the great work you all are doing and your um, readiness to share with others and to keep this community growing and uh, helping uh, protect those we serve and those that serve as well. So thank you very much for all you do. Thank you very much. So we, uh, we really appreciate uh, Bill and this concept of the, um, the concept of the, the transition uh, from some of these low frequency events to the high uh, impact uh, uh, events are critical. Now, John Nance has been a longstanding patient safety, aviation safety, and now school and university safety expert. Uh, he, his expertise really is helping motivate, move, and inspire boards of directors. Uh, John ha was uh, in the military, and uh, we always have fun talking. He was a colonel in the Air Force, as, as my dad was. He was uh, a pilot in the Air Force. He then flew for Braniff uh, Airlines. Uh, and then when Braniff went under, he went to law school. Uh, 
and then he topped off his aviation career as a captain with the Alaskan Airlines. He's written over 20 books, both nonfiction and fiction books, one of the most articulate people who really understands the processes in, in place. The, the combination of having his law degree, his uh, deep appreciation of the systemness of uh, patient safety, aviation safety, school safety, really brings us an opportunity to share some of their critical issues uh, that are important. And he as well um, was uh, tied up today. And so yesterday we recorded, uh, recorded him for you. John, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. You truly are one of the greatest assets in our country because you understand patient safety, aviation safety, and now we're looking at not only medical centers, uh, but we're looking at schools and we're looking at higher education and protecting those who serve and those they serve. John, I know it's your it's your your belief that governance boards need to be educated and well informed. Do you want to address that? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that we have uh, learned in just all aspects of safety involving carbon based human beings, that's us, um, is that you have to you have to have a pretty good grasp on what could happen and the magnitude of those things. And unfortunately, we have too many boards that do not get involved until it is in a reactive status. Uh, I think we use the analogy of the old game, whack-a-mole. You know, something pops up and uh, you, you go attack it and then you think everything's all right. No, in fact, until you have a pretty good idea of what human nature can uh, uh, can cause and uh, the places that they can go, for instance, one disgruntled individual who is not listened to, uh, who's been disruptive on the campus or in some other way, uh, you can't make the assumption that you've got it contained if there are elements of precedence in the past, not just for that individual, but otherwise that this could escalate. Then all of a sudden, now you're whacking a mole that's a much more serious situation. Boards absolutely have to get behind this. They have to understand the level of the threat. They have to understand the escalating part of that, and they have to understand that the one thing we want to avoid at all costs is surprise. In other words, we don't want to hear, well, we didn't see that coming. So, John, as we think about the impact scenarios of uh, those that are high impact, high volume, we know that those are really critical. It's the low impact, high volume that could convert into some of those low volume, high impact scenarios that we're seeing now at schools and at medical centers and all over with active shooter events, but there are a lot more. Uh, and it's critical that everybody really understand the relationship between frequency and volume so they don't get caught off guard, as you've said, uh, or get surprised. Um, John, uh, can you comment regarding uh, uh, these scenarios and from a board perspective, why it's so critical to understand these and maybe relate it to what uh, you've seen in patient safety and in aviation safety? Yes, I think the the assumption that uh, that you've got things contained in any particular area is one of the operative problems here, because whether it's the board or whether it's the C-suite, the idea is, well, what are we doing to contain this? What are we doing to, uh, to identify, for instance, disruptive behavior, mental uh, health issues? Uh, and too often, because there is no carrier wave of, of momentary uh, uh, attention put on it, in other words, nothing's happening right then, the assumption is made that we've got it contained. 
that's that's where you get into massive trouble and you end up with one of these things uh, uh, accelerating up into a high impact, high volume scenario or even worse, uh, an active shooter event or something of that nature. Uh, it, it really, again, it comes down to human nature. It comes down to having an institutional ability to say we don't have these things contained. If there is one single solitary possibility that somebody has not been handled appropriately or some situation has been handled appropriately. I'm talking in generalities, but this this particular graph has some, some very good specifics in it. And every one of the ones in low impact and high volume uh, could easily escalate if not watched, not just contained, but watched. So, John, in the article that you and I wrote with Sully Sullenberger and Dennis Quaid, we talked about a, an NTSB for healthcare. And in that article, we talked about the successes in aviation and why uh, an interdisciplinary approach where multiple players from multiple domains have to work together to tackle threats and reduce risk. Why that's so important now in higher ed and in our medical centers when we look at violence? It's incredibly important because it's a process basically of, of weaving together the entire human experience for a particular area, whether it's a business, whether it's medical, et cetera, and, and being realistic. The thing that changed us completely in in uh, the aviation business and enabled us to get to zero, or at least as close as you humanly can in terms of zero accidents, was realizing that we could not uh, just basically tell people to be safe. We could not direct it. We couldn't do it just one time with training courses. We had to have an omnibus approach to it. And that omnibus approach is never finished. It is always an ongoing process. And this is one of the things that uh, is, is characteristic of what we call a high reliability organization. is one that is always willing to say, well, there are things we screw up every day, but we're going to put every one of them on the table, consider them as messages from the underlying system, and we're going to deal with them and get better and better and better. Without that approach on an omnibus basis, with the approach in the old way, we got this contained. We have a committee over here. We've got a committee over there. You're never going to get there. So, John, uh, when the aviation industry looked at the forecast of future uh, total losses of a, of a hull, of, a, of an airliner going down, they were shocked to realize how frequent that was going to be. And that really is a uh, low frequency or a low volume, but a high impact event. Tell yeah. us how focusing on that made everything else safer and operations got a lot better just as a byproduct. About uh, 1988, there was a major meeting in Washington, D.C. I won't belabor it other than to say that the uh, fellow who was uh, kind of our guru for uh, human factors, uh, Dr. John Lauber, got up and said, I'm throwing away my speech because I heard three different conversations that were identical coming up here today, and they really disturbed me. Three different people were saying, you know, this is such a complex industry. We're, we've done great in, uh, in improving safety, but we're always going to have a few accidents. There's going to be a continuous noise level. He said, guys, if we don't believe in zero, we'll never get close. And that was so true. That was actually the key to what changed in commercial aviation was the idea, as we have been trying to put it into medicine, that if you don't believe that we can get to zero, you're, you're going to always tolerate too much. And there was always going to be a background of accidents. Well, in the case of aviation, you ramp that up over 30 years, and that's what they knew in 1988. And you're dropping a 747 every other day. We couldn't do that. That, that type of impact would simply destroy the industry. Well, fantastic, John. Thank you for your continuous focus on threats, harm, and risk, uh, now expanding it to higher education and more broadly to schools. We are so grateful for your expertise and your insights. Thank you, Jack. 
So we're really appreciative of John's insights. And John will be covering some of these other topics at a later date. As you know, an NTSB is being considered. Now the topic keeps popping up. We'll have our article from 2012 uh, in that uh, on the, uh, posted on the webpage for those that want to read it uh, uh, in, in total. But the issue was the industry got together and focused on safety and quality, interdisciplinary uh, approach, multiple industries and uh, had an enormous uh, impact uh, on, uh, on safety. And uh, we today are uh, at, at just an amazing Six Sigma safety in uh, airlines. Now our bags are not Six Sigma, safe, Six Sigma performance, but definitely our, uh, our, our flights are. So uh, for those of you that are with us, uh, uh, live. We want to let you know that this is an extended session because Vicki King will go for over an hour on a very detailed uh, scenario. This is one that uh, evolved from the um, lower right quadrant of our impact scenarios where uh, someone was complaining, someone was concerned about their parent and uh, escalated and could potentially have escalated to a very high impact, low frequency event. She's gonna take you through it. It was such a, a, an amazing talk that she gave uh, that Netflix uh, picked up on it and thought it was terrific. There may be future film that'll come out and they're embodied in the film and in her presentation are segments from the film that actually prompted focus by uh, a, someone who could have turned into an active shooter. And at the end, for those of you that can't watch for the entire session, we uh, what happened was this appeared to be uh, someone who had a lot of uh, mental problems and difficulties. However, when they went to his home, he had a virtual armory at his home. And um, this was, uh, so a major active shooter event was averted. Um, and she will tell that story. Vicki is uh, the Assistant P Police Chief at the University of Texas Police Department at MD Anderson. Uh, they protect uh, not only those at MD Anderson, but the University of Texas Health Science Center. There are about 160,000 doctors, nurses, students, caregivers, and staff within walking distance um, at Texas Medical Center. I had the honor of training at five out of the six main hospitals there. And I then had the opportunity of collaborating with them. And we've been working in this area of threat safety science uh, since 2015. So we've had a lot of time to think about it and work on it. Vicki is probably the one of the leaders in the world in, in threat safety science, in threat management. Um, and we're collaborating on a book that will be coming out shortly that will put into context the future of threat safety science uh, and and call on looking at looking at the past, and that'll be out in the next three to six months. And um, this is not to revenue, ge generate revenue. All uh, proceeds will be donated to patient safety and quality uh, programs. So everyone knows there's no uh, intention other than to kind of share information. And we'll be sharing uh, the book actually uh, through these series of webinars for free. So we'll hear now from uh, from Vicki King. And uh, we recorded her day before yesterday as she also is speaking on threat safety science today in another city. So we're so grateful to have her uh, speak today and we'll be uh, playing her recording. And uh, for those of you that are online live, um, because of internet speed today, you might see a few glitches and interruptions, but when you go back to our website, you'll be able to see it in entirety. And for those that are on the podcast, sorry that you're not seeing the visuals, 
but uh, you can go to our website to watch uh, the program again. So uh, without further ado, we'll have Vicki King um, speak, and then we'll have Randy Steiner uh, be a reactor to uh, her comments. Vicki, we thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. You've always been such a tremendous speaker, and this topic is, I know, very close to your heart and ours, and uh, the protection of, uh, of everyone at the workplace is so critical. Thank you so much for sharing this uh, talk with us. Oh, thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to explore a... Um, High threat situation involving a self-proclaimed sovereign citizen and uh, the hospital's need to provide life-saving care, life-sustaining care to his 83-year-old mother. I will tell you that we have replaced the actual names with characters from a movie that our uh, sovereign citizen identified with during the course of the investigation. Um, so. What I wanted to do is frame this, all the names except for the investigators, all those names have been changed, as Dragnet would say, to protect the innocent. So uh, we're going to explore this case together, and hopefully we can use the case to illustrate some of the investigative techniques of the threat assessment process that we use to combat workplace violence, especially with some of these more uh, problematic individuals that are um, very difficult to work with within um, the context of the environment. So we're going to jump right in. Fantastic. So our the title of our presentation is Hollywood Hospital and the Sovereign Citizen. This is a uh, mixture of um, three different uh, genres or three different aspects that played into the mindset of the sovereign citizen that our hospital officials had to, to deal with. So we're gonna frame it in terms of trying to get you to see the world through his eyes a little bit. And then we can talk about some of the challenges we had in reaching him and uh, trying to build a dialogue. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Chuck went over my resume. I uh, work with MD Anderson Cancer Center. I've been uh, over their investigative operations now for eight years, uh, as well as UT Health. A little bit of background about both of those institutions. We also uh, work with the Dunn Behavioral Health, which is a brand new state uh, behavioral health hospital, and the Harris County Psychiatric Center. And uh, the Harris County Psychiatric Center will play a small role in this case. So to frame our discussion, the first thing I wanna do is show you a trailer. And this trailer is important because um, our principal uh, subject in this particular case was enamored with and identified with this movie. And we'll talk to you a little bit about what his, um, how he identified and what aspects of the movie he found that paralleled his life. Uh, but so that you can understand where he's coming from, let me just give you a little taste of this Netflix movie uh, called I Care A Lot. 
Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. My name is Marla Grayson. I'm just someone who cares. Marla Grayson, you've had amazing success. What's your secret? There is no secret, Peter. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. Big deal maker. I know what you do here. Your hustle. Look at all these cash cows on your wall just leaking money into your account. But Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? Hello, Marla Grayson. I don't like you. You only just met me. There's two types of people in this world. Predators and prey. I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. Oh, you're in trouble now. I am a lioness. That's our story, and we're going to begin with the real-life parallels that our hospital experienced. Uh, Lucy, that's, that's her fictitious name, uh, is 84 years old. She's the sole living relative of her 57-year-old son, James. She has advanced metastatic cancer, major cognitive disorder, and dementia. She presents to our emergency department with a pulmonary embolism. She is also a named client in three Adult Protective Services uh, investigations against her son, James, for neglect. And her son, um, he struggles with um, any type of authority and refuses to sign any admission documents that he perceives to be a contract between he and the hospital, where the hospital would uh, have some measure of control or authority over him. And so he wants to remove her AMA. Now, as his sole, as her sole heir, he presents the hospital with a medical power of attorney that is signed and notarized by Lucy. Uh, in the investigators, um, or the hospital officials uh, understand uh, that he has removed uh, his mother ANA, AMA from hospital care in the past uh, because of the open adult protective services investigations that are there. So let me tell you a little bit about those. So on February 3rd, she presented uh, to our hospital with difficulty breathing and require, and James had taken her to Methodist Hospital, which is in the Texas Medical Center. Um, 
He presented those medical and durable power of attorneys. Uh, she was diagnosed by Methodist with a pulmonary embolism and classified in critical condition. But again, James refused to sign any of the hospital paperwork and removes her AMA before Methodist can take any action uh, to protect her, to protect Lucy uh, from what they believe is medical neglect. They initiate uh, an adult protective services uh, uh, investigation on that aspect. Um, and But James, in the meantime, before they can gain the legal right to retain Lucy for uh, stabilizing her and treating her pulmonary embolism, uh, James removes her. On February 4th, she continued to struggle. Um, treatment, so he brings her to MD Anderson. She had, had been a previous uh, patient with MD Anderson and they immediately begin to treat her acute symptoms. And James, again, refuses to sign any forms or allow his mother to sign any forms, but the hospital begins to treat her and are working with adult protective services investigators just to get her the care that she needs. They go ahead, uh, James is threatening to remove her, but the hospital staff work with him, do an amazing job of, of treating Lucy's uh, life-threatening situation while keeping him um, under wraps or keeping him satisfied for the moment. Um, they uh, work with protective services and psychiatry begins to evaluate both the mother and James. So on February 8th, she's admitted to the hospital and is being treated. Um, MD Anderson clinical team members find that Lucy is completely incapacitated and her son is unable or unwilling to act in her best interest. So they petitioned for guardianship uh, in Harris County Probate Court number one. You can reflect back to our movie that guardianship um, in the probate court in that court setting was a central theme of uh, the Netflix movie. So um, the Investigation was initiated into physical and medical neglect by her son. And uh, this incapacity uh, was related to um, the inability to provide food, clothing, or shelter for themselves, care for their own physical health, or manage their own financial affairs. So incapacity has a specific legal meeting within uh, a Texas. So Adult Protective Services, they, they had three cases now pending. Uh, the first one was in 2018. James um, James's mother had fallen in the home and broke her hip. Um, he, he took her with a broken hip to three different hospitals uh, for treatment. Each time, uh, for the first two, he removed her AMA because he would not find the... Um, uh, the paperwork necessary for treatment. Uh, the third hospital treated her for her broken hip and again, were able to assuage the concerns of James and just not worry so much about the paperwork, but worry about, focus on the patient and her care um, and uh, to, to try and get the, uh, the hip issue resolved. She was released from the hospital uh, to at-home physical therapy therapy. Uh, but again, James refused to sign any documents pertaining to that care. Uh, he wouldn't allow 
Lucy to speak to any of the care providers outside of his presence. He maintains complete control over her communications. And um, one of the things that the clinicians noted is that the patient appeared to be fearful to answer any of their questions with James interrupting frequently. She was afraid of giving the answer. So um, the because um, uh, the home health care required some releases to enter the home, um, they they were unable to approve the the home health care. Um, they actually did have a home health care agent go out to the home and visit with Lucy and try and speak with her. Uh, but James would only, would not allow them inside the home and would only allow Lucy to speak with the therapist in the backyard. So the therapist was unable to assess the home for fall risk or other important attributes to prevent a second fall or aggravation of her current injury. Now, James had been sending some interesting correspondence to some key figures. And in this particular case, he sent it to the sitting Secretary of State for the, for the uh, United States. And so uh, a special agent with Homeland Security began an investigation of James due to this concerning uh, correspondence that was sent to uh, the U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, they found that Lucy was locked in the home. It appeared that the front doors were blocked, that she couldn't get in or out of the home. And so they initiated their own adult protective services uh, concerns for Lucy. Um, we interviewed in 2021 when she was a patient of ours, we interviewed the doctor of psychiatry and you know, found him to be a true and credible person and uh, they suspected physical and medical neglect uh, by James. And so the investigators uh, reviewed the guardianship referral and uh, sent it over to the probate court. So in court, the investigator presented her findings. She documented Lucy's recent hospitalization, noting that the surrogate decision maker might not be suitable. Uh, the investigator provided the doctor's assessment and found Lucy may not receive medication prescribed to treat the pulmonary embolism and DDT, uh, which would pose an imminent risk of life. So the judge in this hearing in February awarded temporary guardianship of Lucy to the Harris County Guardianship Program. Again, we're gonna mirror back to our movie. Um, and, and James saw this as, um, the, the, the movie foreshadowing what was happening in his real life. James did get an opportunity to address the court, uh, but the judge affirmed temporary guardianship in February 24th to the Harris County Guardianship Program. So what does that mean? Guardianship is one of the most restrictive and permanent solutions to incapacity. So a guardian uh, who is appointed has the authority to make all medical decisions, control all of the patients, uh, all of the wards, assets, movements, um, and it's very difficult, not impossible, as we saw with um, some of our celebrities here recently, uh, but not impossible to regain the rights once they're taken away. So what the guardian does is seize control of all assets, so any social security, any pensions, any, um, 
investment income that you may have. And they take that, the home, any cars, any uh, anything of value that belonging to the ward and begins to use those assets, use those um, uh, income streams for the benefit of the ward. Now, how does this play into James? Well, for us, it was extremely serious. So our first contact with him uh, came at 1030 at night uh, on the 24th of February in 2022, when James arrived at the hospital and he is denied entry. He wants to come visit his mother uh, and he creates a bit of a disturbance. Officers respond and he makes the claim that she's being held against her will and he wants to take her home. He meets with hospital officials and explains, uh, and, and, the, and the hospitals explain to him, and James is well aware that guardianship has already been awarded uh, to the Harris County Guardianship Program. And now they're going to make all the medical decisions regarding his mother's care. And in fact, James has been so disruptive in the process that uh, the guardians have uh, denied any visitation that James would have with his mom. So now again in the movie, uh, James, uh, just like the characters in the movie, James has been denied the ability even to visit his mother. Uh, so he calls the Houston Police Department to report a kidnapping. We, because it's on our campus, the University of Texas Police respond and they listen and James presents paperwork. He says, look, this is my, uh, uh, medical and durable power of attorney. They uh, and that they need to explain to him. The officers on the scene explained. Look, those documents have now been nullified by the court. When the court awarded guardianship and declared her award um, of the of the of Harris County, those documents in his possession were no longer valid. James at this time begins to try and show officers what he calls his contracts, which prove that he, not the court, uh, have sole right to make decisions for his mother's care. But interesting enough, the officers didn't pick up immediately that James also made the claim that his contract gave him control over the courts. And that, that's key to James' mindset. Uh, he doesn't create it, you know, he speaks loudly and, and demonstratively, but there's no physical violence. He just vows that he's going to, uh, he'll be back and that people will be sorry. And he drives to a nearby police substation for the Houston Police Department to make a report for kidnapping and unlawful detention. So we begin to look at his uh, behavior. James Obviously, he's not going to take no for an answer. Uh, he begins making repeated calls to his mom's room. Each time he does, he he incites her. He just he he uh, the fear of that poor woman, and um, just creating extraordinary distress for her. Um, so they remove the phone from the mom's room. Now he begins his calls to the nurses' station. Uh, eventually, we had to block the phone calls from his phone number to the nurse's station. And then he begins to deliver unsolicited care packages. And these are some of the, the items that he did. He loves his mother. He just cannot understand how 
the government has seized control over not just her person, but it soon will be seizing control over everything that she owns and all of her income streams. So James now begins to send, I mentioned some contracts. James begins to send some contracts. As we begin to learn more about James and his way of thinking, James uh, subscribes to a, a very fringe, but um, somewhat uh, robust in terms of numbers. There are more than 300,000 people who, who ascribe to the sovereign citizen philosophy. And for those of you who are not uh, familiar with it, sovereign citizens believe that government does not have an inherent right to control you or any of your actions through laws on the books. In fact, as we got to know James and got to understand more about his uh, mindset, James believed that uh, when you are born, you cannot immediately begin to be controlled by government because you have a right, uh, a human right to be free. And that the laws that are in place were invented by what he calls dead men. So laws enacted, the constitution and other provisions of government that were formed for the United States were inventions of dead men. And dead men can have no control over who you are and what you do. The only way that you can have control over another person or thing is by through a contract. So if you agree uh, to this is how we're going to interact, you have an agreement that that is the only true and binding uh, artifact that can control another human's existence. So it's an interesting prospect. There's a lot of literature on it. So this is one of James's contracts, and it's a standard kind of contract, but there's some language in here I want to point to. Uh, and this is his words. Me and my mother also have total immunity from Texas and the U.S. Uh, because there's no contract. He has not accepted a contract. He talks about the U.S. government. He talks about the state government, city government as corporations. Corporations can only have power over other fictions and or people by a contract to bind them to their will. Um, to force my mother to be a hostage and take her assets and take over her life and mine. Uh, you have to have a contract. My mother and me are both sovereign, head of state. They believe that they are sovereign uh, in their life and that no one, uh, they're independent people, independent thinkers who are free from the constraints of, of society because they never signed a contract with society agreeing to abide by its laws and restrictions. And then James goes on in another section, he talks about my mom's life is at risk because your agents want to show me that they have total power over my will and my mom's life and assets, they don't. So this is some of the rhetoric that we look at. And when we begin to examine from a threat assessment perspective, we, uh, the life of an individual, we look at their background, we look at their history, we look at their propensity for violence, but we want to understand where they are coming from. What, what are their thoughts and how do they work 
Uh, and then we want to establish what is their baseline and see if there's an escalation, a deviation from, from baseline. So the, this is multiple, multiple pages. Um, and, and these are some of the key provisions of his standard contract. These are our baseline that you agree you and all you have a, a, a duty to me. You agree to pay me any liability. I'm not going to go through all of these. But you can see how he begins to say that he now, by this contract, has control over everything you have uh, and all of your assets. And, and uh, his will is, is law. The key thing here is you agree that this contract is over everything and cannot be avoided in any way or at any time and never end. So you, you may be sitting there asking yourself, well, why would anybody ever sign that contract, right? Well, see, James fancies himself as being um, smarter than everyone else. So he has a gotcha clause. And his gotcha clause says that you must disagree via certified mail within 24 hours of receipt or the agreement and the contract are accepted. So once you've done this, you have accepted the provisions of his contract because you failed to disagree with the contract. So uh, has no legal basis, obviously, but in James's mind, he has outsmarted the world uh, with these contracts so that he now has control over you and uh, uh, your all of your uh, value, your net worth, and you are under his complete control. So I said that that was our baseline. Those are basic con contracts. Real quick, I'll swing back. I want you to see that he writes in cursive here in his custom contract. Uh, the handwriting is uh, is in a staccato um, uh, print format. So um, again, we look at the um, the context. So those those cursive writings that we actually believe James's mother may have written the cursive writings uh, with him in these in these standard contracts that he drafted. So we we start to evaluate: Is this guy just uh, is he a howler or is he a hunter? And a howler are those um, people who, you know, society has tagged as sitting in their mother's basement, pounding out emails, um, trying to inflict chaos on the world. They do something that is outrageous and they get their uh, satisfaction from, from watching the chaos that ensues from them dropping these um, really wild accusations and, and wild comments. So those are, we call those howlers, people who howl at the moon. And they're really, there's no direct correlation between uh, a howler and uh, an act of violence. But a hunter is different. A hunter is someone who has a grievance. They have, uh, they want to exact revenge or create uh, a, an act of targeted violence uh, to address their grievance. And those kinds of folks are extraordinarily dangerous. And they may not telegraph exactly what they're going to do. They're, usually there are no direct threats, but you can see a building in their language 
uh, as they prepare along what we call the pathway to violence, as they proceed along that pathway. And there's some seminal work, and we actually uh, consulted with um, uh, Frederick, he goes by Ted, Ted Calhoun, and uh, Steve Weston, uh, who actually wrote the book on threat assessment management strategies uh, and identifying the difference between hunters and howlers. And they helped us assess some of the language in here. A great read if you get an opportunity. So as we move into act two of our story, uh, this is where the investigative process really begins because we wanna determine as Reed Malloy uh, uh, in his seminal work talks about, is this a delusion? a fixation or an overvalued belief, because each one has a little bit different um, predicate um, toward an act of violence. So we look at the special challenges in talking with James, his rigid thinking. You're, we talk in terms of conceptual complexity, and, and James is not conceptually complex. That means that he can only see the world in one way, and it is his way of viewing things. Uh, he cannot see alternatives. He cannot, uh, he cannot understand other more broad concepts. Uh, he is very rigid and very focused in his thinking. Uh, completely non-rational framework that he works from. He's also had negative prior experiences with authority, and we'll talk a little bit about those as we move forward. High situational stress. Let's think about this high situational stress for James. In James's case, um, James has never held a job. He is 57 years old. He's never had a, an intimate pair bond with another human being. Uh, not He is unable to form and maintain any kind of even superficial relationship with anyone beyond his mother. Uh, he's unable to, um, his world is his house. Uh, that is owned by his mother, which is now owned and con are controlled, I should say, by the Harris County Guardianship Program. Uh, he has no income stream, uh, even though he uh, could qualify for disability under his mental um, uh, challenges that he has in his life. Uh, he would never sign up for Social Security or other benefits that would uh, provide some sort of income stream for him because he's never going to sign the contract. His income came from his mother, who was fairly successful in life. She had a pension. She had made some wise investments in her years. And so she had some investment income, Social Security, and a pension. His mother was his only income stream. So when that is now taken away by the guardianship program uh, for her medical care, not for the maintenance of the home, not for the maintenance of James and his needs, you can see how these high situational life stressors now begin to ramp up considerably. James, because he's never owned a, a, a um, uh, or had a job or owned any property or anything of that uh, ilk, everything is in the name of his mother. The vehicle he drives, the furniture in the house, everything belongs to his mom. In, in, in reality, James owns nothing. Uh, this isolation from others, 
the coexisting mental illness, we'll, we'll talk a little bit as we move forward. So we talked a little bit about this. James's parents were divorced when he was a child. Um, and his father reported in a police report in 2006 that James had suffered, uh, uh, had a psychiatric history uh, stemming from the age of 12. He had one sibling, a brother who predeceased him a number of years ago. He died from uh, natural causes. Uh, the open source of his criminal history, which is what police investigators typically go to, showed only one uh, arrest, and that was for interference with public duties, a misdemeanor that was in 2013, and that case was dismissed. So when you begin to look at some of this, um, very limited information about James in open source, uh, no social media profile, no, no history. Um, James shied away from the internet. He was afraid he was being spied on. That's his paranoia coming to root. But his father talked about uh, his psychiatric history. So we have to dig deeper. We can't just scratch the surface. We went in and looked at reports where James had not been arrested, but a police report, and we found some disturbing information. In July 2006, he had uh, a, been a named suspect in a family violence case involving his 71-year-old father. Now, this is interesting. James had been estranged uh, from his father since he was in his early teens. Um, the, the father... Um, told investigators that James uh, struggled with mental illness. He felt like his mother was an enabler. Uh, he couldn't connect with James. He couldn't get him the help he needed. And he hadn't seen James for almost a decade. When James showed up uh, and his, his father opened the garage door and James was standing there. James rushed his father, attacked him, held him captive for 11 hours. His father believed he was in mental health crisis. He was talking in circles. Uh, he was talking about how uh, he had full control over his father, all of his father's uh, uh, assets, all of his um, property, and that his father needed to pay him what he owed him. Uh, James's father was able to escape after that 11-hour ordeal during which he was beaten uh, by James. When police responded, James had left the area, but his father didn't want to press charges. And so when his dad refused to cooperate with the investigation, saying, look, his son is mentally ill, um, he really didn't want to see him going to jail, he needed to get help. Um, so unable to pursue it criminally, the case was closed. Then just a few months later, James returned. Again, he held his father captive. This time he extorted $75,000, uh, forcing his father to turn in CDs and um, uh, money. Um, he held his dad for four days and, um, and again, escaped. his father escaped this time uh, and James ran and the police were unable to find him. And that case was unfortunately never pursued. Uh, we don't have a disposition on it. It wasn't from our agency. It was another agency. The 2013 case was an interesting case. Uh, James believed that the smart meter that had been installed by Centerpoint Energy uh, was collecting data on him and creating an inability for him to sleep. 
uh, that it was sending electrodes and harming both he and his mother. So James disconnected it. Um, Centerpoint Energy went out to reinstall it, uh, and James ordered them from the property saying that no, um, uh, they were trespassing on his property, and uh, the police were called, and um, officers took James into custody for interfering with the ability of Centerpoint Energy to reinstall the smart meter. Uh, that case uh, was presented, it was a misdemeanor, and it was presented to criminal court. And that brings us to uh, yet another interesting aspect. For those who have dealt with the sovereign citizen philosophy in the past, you begin to see how they weaponize the civil process. Now, for someone who doesn't believe in laws and constraints, um, James, among many others, was very selective in what laws they, they tried to use to their benefit. So let me walk you through this a little bit. It's, a, it's an interesting um, um, journey that happened. So in May 2013, James was uh, uh, charged with interference with public duties and um, sent to court. He sent the uh, the criminal court judge, one of his standard contracts where he controls the court, he controls the judge, he controls everything they say. The court pays no, no heed to those um, communications. Uh, they order a competency hearing for James, uh, and James was found incompetent to stand trial, unlikely to recover. And so the criminal case against James was dismissed on uh, his on competency issues. Uh, once the case was dismissed, this is the only time James actually ever engaged um, with uh, legal representation. He hired an attorney to expunge his criminal court record. He didn't want the courts having any record of him. And so this attorney uh, begins to file paperwork. Of course, James wasn't up front with him about the, the rationale and reasoning for the uh, court dismissal, uh, which plays a role, a significant role as we move forward. Um, he, uh, this attorney filed the uh, permission. Um, so here's, uh, again, I, I told you that uh, James uses contracts to his benefit. And he had provided a contract on the criminal court judge. When the judge did not comply, the criminal court judge did not comply with the provisions of James's contract, he filed civil suit against the judge uh, with the 125th Judicial District. That's a civil court. And uh, so in 2016, he filed suit against uh, the state of Texas and the court judge for uh, unlawful prosecution um, and a crazy concophony of different um, threaded together. It's, it's, it's really interesting, but hard to follow. Um, he has, when you try and understand his cause of action and how he uses some of Texas laws, but also in the same breath refute that he is beholden to any of those laws, it, it's very interesting. But he uses his contract as the legal basis for his control over the court and their failure to do what he wanted them to do. So uh, 
after he filed that suit, then he presents a contract to the 125th uh, judge. So the uh, his civil court judge, he, he says that if the judge does anything that James disagrees with, he's going to impose penalties for failure to comply with the contract. And uh, the penalty is 999 trillion tons of gold. Trillion tons of gold. Uh, James clearly has no concept of what that means or or where it is, but he he gives this court judge uh, this contract. Again, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. The judge doesn't pay any attention to it, just carries on with his duties to adjudicate the claim against the criminal court judge. And then lo and behold, James goes to the 129th Judicial uh, District and files Suit against the 125th judge for failure for breach of contract, failure to pay the um, the fines and fees that J- James has imposed as a result of his contract. Uh, of course, he's not going to be remiss. He also uh, places the 129th judge under a contract, imposing fines and fees and penalties for failure to rule in his favor. So. Uh, we see this this network. It takes a while. The 125th um, uh, court gets their case dismissed uh, in April of the uh, of that year. Uh, the criminal court judge similarly gets her case dismissed in 2018 on sovereign immunity. James is incensed about all this, so he goes back to the 125th and files suit against the attorney who was supposed to file his expungement paperwork and and, and secure his expungement, but uh, that didn't occur, and that case was finally dismissed in October of 2018. So you see this journey from May of 2013 to the final dismissal in October of 2018. A lot of work. Uh, was gone into uh, by the uh, Texas State Attorney General in the preparation of these documents. The time that was taken up by the court in these frivolous lawsuits by a man who clearly um, is struggling with uh, mental illness. But uh, this is the weaponization process. So Again, we go back and we look, okay, we can see the contracts that James has written in the past. We have that his previous writings uh, form our baseline. He sent these contracts to the Secretary of State, the U.S. Secretary of State, as I told you earlier, but he sent them to the Texas governor, the Houston mayor, the CEO of Centerpoint, the Texas attorney general, all of these judges. And they may have varied in length and grievance but they presented the same conceptual rhetoric uh, and um, the same concept that it, you have to reject the contract within his time frame or it is accepted. And the only violence that we saw in those contracts uh, began to see with the, uh, was uh, centered around the encounter with the center point tech, technician. Uh, James talked about how his pen was his weapon. So in looking at the documents, those formed our baseline. Well, in March of 2021, uh, we began to receive uh, different types of contracts, not the nice, smooth uh, penmanship or the cursive writing that you saw in his uh, 
uh, his routine contracts, these began to have more of a staccato feel. He was writing in the margins uh, there uh, as a thought would progress. He would insert those thoughts. Uh, and uh, so we began to see that his threats became increasingly more direct, more personal, and most important for us, emotionally charged. So um, we uh, uh, looked at the, uh, one of the biggest things was this March 23rd, 2021. It was a 14-page uh, document filed uh, with um, the probate court. Uh, James began to target the probate court uh, for their stance on the guardianship of his mother. And you can see some of the language that we pulled out here. And he begins to look at, uh, to, to frame his argument as being unlawful and that what was being done to him was evil uh, and that it was a declaration of war. And he frames himself as... Um, a justice warrior, someone who abides by the law, but now he is being targeted by government. And, and this last statement uh, particularly stood out to us, and it said, Judge, when I said I would not fight back, what you are to understand is that I will not kill you for this evil you're doing to my family. I fight with my pen, and I always work to be peaceful, but murder my mother as I am next to her and I will kill the, that person, uh, kill the person that did this. So now he is personalizing it. He's telling us what his planned action is, if uh, uh, ill will, and he finishes this document with obey or die. That is much different rhetoric than what we saw in the other so we began, this is one of our investigators who worked on this case, did a fantastic job. His name is Carlos Guzman. Uh, and he and we began to look at the escalation factors. So he's restricted from all contact with his mom. His mom's bank accounts are seized by the guardian to pay for her care. The court ordered to surrender his mother's vehicle and vacate the home. Notice of intent to seize that home knowledge that his mother is dying and time is running out. Now, we use structured judgment tools like the Waiver 21 that was developed by Dr. Reed Malloy and Dr. Stephen White, who, and they help us frame uh, and try and eliminate some of the uh, confirmation bias that sometimes creeps up when someone um, is, ex uh, is especially difficult to deal with. Uh, these are structured judgment tools that have specific behaviors that can be documented that tell us whether or not someone is on the pathway to violence. And our uh, assessment of, uh, of James was at this point, he showed 15 of 21 risk factors. Uh, we also use um, uh, experts. We have our multidisciplinary team on the left is Dr. Georgia Thomas. In the center is Altervis Rivas, the uh, chair of our behavioral intervention team at the hospital, and Inspector Mary Linsky, who heads up our threat management unit. Uh, we use that. We, um, we obviously consulted with uh, Drs. Weston and Calhoun. Uh, 
and then we also worked on um, Dr. Reed Malloy developed another uh, structured judgment tool, the TRAP-18. Uh, and it, it, these are for people with um, uh, on the pathway to violence who have grievances against government, government officials. And when he talks about the extreme overvalued belief, uh, there are key aspects that we take into consideration. One is that their belief is shared by others. And, and James is part of this sovereign citizen movement. So they get reinforced by this negative literature and information that keeps coming their way. Um, it is a, it, it, their belief system is relished, amplified, and defended by these folks. James's view is simplistic, binary, and absolute. There's an intense emotional commitment to it, and all of these factors may lead uh, to the pathway to violence. So uh, we're assessing this, and then boom, we get some more uh, concerning uh, contract language that James is sending. And, and again, first sentence, to all agents, I just saw the movie, I care a lot. And so he talks about how the doctors are working in the movie, uh, how the guardian sees all the assets of uh, this person who is perfectly able of making their own decisions about their, their care and welfare and for family members who are engaged and want to help, uh, they take all that away from the, uh, from the family. And, and so James says, I ask and or order the judge in this case and all agents to see this movie as soon as they can, as soon as you get this affidavit judge you're part of this evil let's clear it up for the court and all and then if you will not stop this evil madness on me and my mother men and women will kill you for this kind of evil and rightly so i will give you no tears when they do judge see the movie i care a lot in the movie they show the judge to be non-evil and the judge is at the heart of this lawlessness and evil and if i can see it and know it, so can many others. So let's look at what James was seeing in the movie and what his thoughts were. You think you're good people. You're not good people. Trust me, there's no such thing as good people. I used to be like you thinking that working hard and playing fair would lead to success and happiness. It doesn't. Playing fair is a joke invented by rich people to keep the rest of us poor. And I've been poor. It doesn't agree with me. Because there's two types of people in this world. The people who take, and those getting took. Predators and prey. Lions and lambs. My name is Marla Grayson, and I'm not a lamb. I am a lioness.
be able to see her whenever I want. She doesn't need to be in a care facility. She doesn't need a court-appointed guardian. She has a loving son to take care of her, and I just don't understand how the court can entrust my mother to this stranger. Miss Grayson forced my mother into the home when she made it very clear that she didn't want to go. And now she has auctioned off my mother's house, her car, her personal belongings, and she, she uses the proceeds to pay herself. And now Miss Grayson has barred me from seeing my mother at all. <laughs> she has kidnapped my mother. So our third act, our third and final act, obey or die. So we have this new contract. We have specific actionable threats that we've pulled out. Uh, and we confer with the probate court. They haven't read any of this. These filings are coming in, and we talk about approach behaviors. James is going to the court in the middle of the night and flipping these in the drop box, uh, and they're appearing the next day. Uh, and James is telling us in his contract filings, Judge, I have a contract with you now in force. It's a safe bet. You do not like this. You steal our life. And I'm thinking on this all the time and every day. So this is, uh, these are his provisions. You agree I may use anything on you at any time in any way. You agree anyone can kill you on site, KOS. KOS stands for kill on site. You agree, you agreed to be killed. You agree. You, Judge, are at war with the people of the USA, and you and all may, can, kill you legally for this evil you do, the justice warrior. He has justified what he is doing. And it goes on for pages and pages. I've pulled out some key uh, uh, provisions. You agree that people will go after your family as you've done to the people. And it's a very safe bet. Blood will be in order. You play, you pay. You agree the evil agents will not stop until they're a real cost to them. And KOS, kill on site, is a real cost. KOS will work and might be the only way to stop the murder, fraud, lawlessness, evil actions, violence, threats, rape asset-taking, and the list goes on and on. It's a good fight and a lawful fight. You will be fighting all the time, but fighting for freedom is better than waiting for the people to kill you for all your sorry, evil actions. So page after page after page, I'm not asking. I order all to obey. You agree I'm peaceful and lawful, and so is anyone that kills you or anyone that lives with you. I'm mad as hell, and you have my mother, and you're murdering her. These are for telling James's philosophy and what his plans are. You agree, killing on site, KOS can only be stopped on you by returning all assets and costs and freeing my mother to me. And making it known you have no jurisdiction and you have no jurisdiction on me and my mother. Have total immunity and you work with me to try and make a real lawful system that all can use and get lawful benefits from. Only then can you not be KOS. So 
James has uh, given his last chance. We talk about this last chance language in our field. We look at um, ultimatums. And I think a reasonable person can infer that these are, are truly ultimatums. And we uh, took these to the court, the guardian, and the county officials. We explained the threat assessment, the significant factors. Uh, no one had read the filing that we had. Nobody's done an analysis on them. We raised their awareness. We created safety plans for them. And uh, the judge wanted to pursue the criminal charges. In the state of Texas, we have felony retaliation. And that um, uh, protects courts and officials uh, any public servant from um, uh, a, an actor who wants to perpetrate an act of violence or retaliate against them for doing what they needed to do. Uh, we were able to get a pocket warrant, and because we were very concerned with James's rhetoric, um, we know how the sovereign citizens work, uh, we were concerned. It looked, appeared that his home had cameras up that he would be able to see the approach of law enforcement. Uh, we planned a tactical arrest uh, using SWAT and bomb squad from HPD to help us with uh, the arrest warrant and a search warrant of the residents. Of course, in police work, nothing ever goes to plan. Um, uh, we James was actually um, encountered on one of the surveillance team's uh, passes of the residents. And, uh, and he was taken into custody there. Um, one of the key factors that we work on is, you know, in most law enforcement instances, you make an arrest, you take the person to jail, and that is the end of the case. Well, we recognize the ongoing potential for violence should James win his freedom. And, and that's highly likely with, um, you know, He's entitled to a fair hearing about bail, and uh, a judge, you know, may hear his case and his pleadings and allow him um, to be released back into the community. So what we wanted to do is rehabilitate. Instead of taking James to jail and then the arrest warrant, the first thing we did was take him to see his mom. Now, because James is under arrest and in our control, Mom, and we had some volunteer nurses who volunteered to take mom to a secure area of the hospital, and they managed her care while James sat with his mom for more than two hours and, and said his goodbyes. Um, she was nearing the end of life. Uh, we supervised him, uh, and he got to you know spend time with mom. Now, he railed and... Uh, talked about the government and the injustice and all those things, but he did spend some time talking to his mom, making those connections. And once he was taken to jail, we followed up with some FaceTime visits uh, on an iPad between James and his mom. Of course, because her situation was so dire, she really couldn't communicate with him. And um, she did, um, she did, pass away a few days after his arrest. And our investigator and the chaplain went and visited James and, uh, and made the notification. Even to this day, James does not believe that his mother is actually dead, um, which is concerning to us. 
Uh, he, he says she probably is, but he's not going to believe it until he sees her. Well, she passed away um, almost a year ago now, and, and uh, she, is, she has uh, long since been uh, committed to um, uh, one of our local cemeteries. But it's important that we continue that. When the search warrant was executed, uh, it was done with care for concerns. It took the bomb squad a long time to clear the residence. This is part, one of the rooms of the residence that was lined uh, with, uh, these are those thermal blankets uh, made of aluminum foil. James did that to protect him against the smart meter on the side of the house and from uh, what he perceived to be probes uh, that would try and monitor his movements. Um, his kitchen was in disarray. He had a, an interesting, um, he, he loved his mom and he tried to care for her. He had on the kitchen table, uh, or I'm sorry, on the kitchen counter, he had a, a crock pot type of instrument that we were concerned uh, might be the beginnings of making a bomb. But uh, as it was analyzed by our experts, uh, it was determined he was trying to cook up medications for his mom homeopathic uh, remedies to, to cure her. Um, he was a hoarder. This was his home. Uh, you see a lot of cat food uh, boxes. He had some cats. We had to gain guardianship of the cats after his arrest. Um, this was his mother's room, and you can see how she was a fall risk. Um, that's her bed there. Um, uh, it's easy to see how she could possibly trip and and break her hip. Uh, this was James's room. Um, he did have some computer equipment. He would unplug it every night uh, and keep it from being able to um, uh, be accessed by the government remotely. But as we explored the past, uh, the the um, pathway to violence, we looked for not only his plan to harm people, but his ability to carry it out. And in James's case, he had a massive amount of firepower. All of these weapons, uh, he inherited one from uh, his father, uh, but all of these weapons were in his mother's name. Uh, uh, this is a SCAR, uh, an assault rifle um, that is extremely powerful, and uh, it was uh, ready to go. Um, massive amounts of ammunition. And this uh, plate carrier, uh, where he, you know, he, I guess he has a whimsical side, uh, winning, plays well with others. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might have some evidence to dispute that, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, we look at did, does he have the ability to carry it out? So we talked about grievance mitigation. Um, one of the things we wanted to do in case he got out is we repaired the damage to the home. Um, the doors had been ripped off in order to gain entrance by SWAT and bomb squad. We had those um, repaired. Uh, we arranged for lawn care, one of his neighbors to mow his lawn. Uh, we took custody of the family cat. We had to get guardianship of the cat for the court. James wanted us just to lock the cat in the house. Well, you can imagine leaving a poor cat to its own devices for more than a year. Um, that would be bad. Uh, and then we um, had those jailhouse visits uh, that were arranged by Carlos Guzman, the lead investigator on this case. Um, 
So uh, one of the things we wanted to do is get James his own income stream. Uh, and um, so we talked with him about Social Security benefits. Um, where is James now? Well, this is one of those cases where his psychosis actually worked to our benefit. He would have qualified for a bond, uh, but he refused to sign any paperwork that was required for his release. He refused to accept any terms or conditions associated with a conditional release. He's continued to make multiple filings to the criminal court. He had refused uh, court-appointed counsel. Uh, the, the court ordered a mandatory competency hearing, and he was found incompetent to stand trial and now has uh, a court-appointed attorney. Um, he was remanded from the jail to the Harris County Psychiatric Center, one of our hospitals, uh, and we maintained regular visits with him over at HCPC. Um, the lead investigator, he says that James calls him a Nazi, but a good Nazi. So maybe that's progress. Uh, the case is still open and very active. Um, I don't know how the court will ultimately decide James's fate, um, but there seems to be mo no movement in his mental illness or his ability um, to understand what's happened to him or prepare for a life outside of, um, of custody. And um, in an ironic move, uh, James may become a ward of the court and under the guardianship program of the Harris County uh, to bring it full circle. So we talk in terms right now, James is safe. There were no attacks upon the judges, the guardians. Uh, the doctors in our hospitals received contracts. I received a contract myself from James um, in trying to manage his case early on. Um, so we talk about alternate endings. And in the movie, um, there was no threat assessment of the characters in the movie uh, that James identified with. There was no um, intervention strategies. There's no coordinated approach. And so the alternate ending that took place in the movie, we are afraid could have been our ending. All it takes is hard work and the courage and determination to never give up. So now you are a rich woman. How much are you worth? How much do you have in the bank? You were great. Oh, my cheeks are aching from forcing that smile for so long. I haven't counted recently. Oh, but you are firmly in the top slice of the one percent. What should we do now? Whatever we want. Hey, Mitch! And you're still only 39. That must feel good. Hey, Mitch! <laughs> oh, listen, I don't have time. No! Ah! No! Security! My mom died! Help! Help! You never let me see her. She died in there alone, you Baby, baby, you're gonna be fine. Look at me, baby. Look at me. Look at me. Help! Help! Marla! 
So with all the success, are you still ambitious? Are there dreams you still want to achieve? Peter, I am only just getting started. Marla Grayson, CEO and founder of Grayson Guardianships, thank you. Thanks. It's been fun. And so as we close our our um, our case review, our, our case study of James, our sovereign citizen, his connection to the movie, and um, his view of the world, um, I offer you uh, this cautionary tale. Um, pay attention. Uh, listen. Um, work toward a future resolution and don't rely on the fact that because uh, the person is temporarily incapacitated uh, to put your mind at ease. Management of these cases extends far beyond an arrest. Uh, we continue to monitor James. We continue to work on his case. And should he ever be released, um, we will be reengaged with renewed safety plans for potential targets and we'll continue our efforts um, to connect with James. We may not be able to reach him completely, but either to neutralize, mitigate, or redirect his threat away from our officials and toward uh, um, the law enforcement community if we can. So, so Vicki, what a terrific presentation. And if I were running a 300-bed hospital, the average size hospital in America, or if I was running a major university, I would say, oh my gosh, you, you all have such great competency and command of a very complicated body of information and have the resources to act. My first question really is your advice to the small hospital or the team very early in understanding threat management. Any tips that you would recommend, the books you cited, other things that you would recommend for people that are getting started? And those, many of them are, are joining our community of practice to focus on emerging threats. Right, and, and I understand the resource challenges of some of the hospitals. The, the most important thing you need to do is to educate yourself about what threat assessment is. And if someone is exhibiting these behaviors of concern, uh, to begin to learn how to recognize them. Many times, uh, in fact, there was a, an interesting study uh, that I read that talked about your gut reaction um, to some of these cases or concerning individuals. Uh, sometimes it's spot on. Uh, and so the question is not recognizing them because most of us can recognize when somebody is so far afield, so much of an outlier uh, that their behaviors indicate that they could become violent. So what do you do? How do you, how, what actions are you going to take? Well, collaboration is probably the number one thing that you can do. Uh, if you have a local university, most of them have been trained in either the, either the NABIDA uh, structured judgment instrument or a similar device that helps you recognize individuals on the pathway to violence. 
talk to them about their mitigation strategies. How do you uh, how do you work to make a contact with the person, not where you are, but at their level, and then work to either address their grievance in some way or to construct what we call a soft landing? Is there some way that you can construct? Now, in, in James's case, there was no soft landing to be had, so neutralizing the threat was the only alternative we had. Then with our investigators connecting with him, we were able to redirect some of his attention away from the courts, away from the judges, away from the guardians, and most importantly, away from our doctors and onto our investigator. So our investigator has a dialogue with him and begins, our investigator becomes the safety beacon to know when James is returned to somewhat of a baseline or when James is escalating and where he's escalating. And then we can, we can try and get ahead of the potential impact of a violent interaction with James. Partnering with local law enforcement in your rural communities, in your small hospital settings, the most important relationship you can have is with your law enforcement. Help the, help the chief law enforcement officer understand that you are a critical infrastructure and that the two of you need to partner on how to identify these problematic individuals, how to address the behaviors, and how to construct a coordinated response. Sometimes it requires the court. Sometimes it requires mental health professionals to help. Um, sometimes it requires outside consultants who will come in and help you craft a mitigation strategy. You don't have to have in-house folks like MD Anderson has with our team. You can, you can reach out to professionals. The universities, they have a community aspect. Many of them are in the threat assessment space and understand it. There's also an organization that I belong to, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. And uh, it's nominal cost to become a member uh, and to get free training from them to understand. But the networking that you receive with those threat assessment professionals gives you someone to call, someone to ask questions of, someone to help to listen to where you are and help walk you through some strategies that may work. And I will tell you the strongest thing that you can do is to form a, a multidisciplinary team within your hospital, get them some training, help educate them on the, on the research associated with threat assessment, as well as some of the strategic approaches to diminishing harm and have them collaborate on safety planning, um, strategies on mitigation, uh, working with law enforcement so that you can feed law enforcement the behaviors that indicate the person's on a, on a pathway to violence and recommended um, pathways that you collaborate on to mitigate this threat. Those are things that don't cost a lot. You don't have to hire a whole staff of people. Or, but if you, if you build these relationships, and work collaboratively, it is lower cost, but higher impact in terms of being able to address these behaviors of concern. And, you know, in James's case, we were collaborating with Homeland Security, we were collaborating with the State Department, 
and we were collaborating with um, the Texas State uh, uh, Attorney General's office to really look at the legal structure and so that if we have to get into a neutralization with an arrest, which is not going to end the threat, but may keep people safe in the short term, then play long term. Monitor, are they getting out of jail? Uh, are they going to get out on bond? Because when they come out, they may be more angry and more dedicated to their pathway toward violence than they ever were before. So you've got to realize that that has some risk strategies and be ready for it. Um, uh, ankle Request ankle monitoring for those uh, people who get out. Request law enforcement assistance. Do some target hardening. Have some extra security in your hospital to deal with those particular cases. It's not easy, but there are some solutions that are low cost if you know how to put them together and what strategy to use. Such great advice. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I've put up our, our four quadrants of impact scenarios, and we had a wonderful discussion this week with you regarding the low impact, high volume uh, issues that then can transition into a high impact, low volume, where that you really can see transitions from these. Do you want to address uh, uh, why it's so important to monitor the things that appear not to be really too uh, threatening and then how they can evolve? Right. Uh, when you have, and we all get patient complaints, we get uh, uh, family member complaints regarding care. It's when you, those issues begin to solidify and focus on a specific person or organization. When the language begins to be linked toward uh, a justification for an act of violence, as we saw with James, James began to justify that if someone was killed on site, it was legal and justified. It was morally right. It was the only way to stop evil from being perpetrated. When someone starts to use language that you're being evil, that this is a life or death situation, that you're committing an act of murder or you are harming someone and they are justified in intervening. Those are specific languages that have a high correlation with a future act of violence. What you wanna do is try and look at the grievance from their vantage point, not yours, not your policy, not your how the attorneys are telling you, what you want to do is try and listen to them. You don't have to agree with them, but let them vent and talk to them. Okay, we seem to be at an impasse here. What can we do to work the problem? Let's not add additional problems to this uh, with threats or innuendos. Let's see what we can do to work the problem. And taking it from that standpoint, trying to construct a face-saving opportunity for this person, uh, trying to construct a soft landing, trying to redirect their grievance into another area or to another person, sometimes can have positive results. But you look for those things that are changing away from a baseline complaint to a last chance. This is your last opportunity. This is life or death. You are evil. And now you have brought this on yourself, whatever happens next. Those are key language factors that we look for in, in these kinds of instances and engagement and collaboration 
really need to, to happen fairly quickly to try and, and get ahead of those situations. Vicki, thank you so much for uh, a terrific presentation, great answers to these very difficult questions. And it, we really are at the beginning of the beginning of understanding threat safety science. And thank you for your work in being a pathfinder along with Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats and uh, so many others that are collaborating, those from the Mayo Clinic, uh, the Chief Horace, uh, the Chief of uh, Security at Mayo Clinic, and Casey Clements, Dr. Casey Clements. Um, it is so critical that we really understand how to protect those we serve and those who serve uh, together. So you are really uh, our hero. Thank you for all of what you have done and what you're going to do in the future, especially as you now expand into higher ed. Right, right. Uh, working with some of our sister institutions across the state of Texas and, and around the U.S. Uh, to help them understand and apply some of these principles. We're really trying to pay it forward because that's the best thing we can do is contribute positively to um, this incredibly um, concerning trend that we're seeing uh, across the nation. Mass shootings occur, targeted violence are occurring at uh, an increased cadence. So anything that we can do to help those, our brethren, uh, we're all about. Fantastic. He is the Director of Emergency Preparedness at the University of California, Irvine. He's a best-selling author. He's a wonderful community leader. Uh, and we really appreciate uh, the fact that, that, that Randy can uh, really uh, help us uh, kind of put into context his uh, view from, uh, from higher education and looking at a major, they, we have a major medical center at uh, University of California, Irvine as well. Uh, as um, as what we uh, what what we have with the university, Randy, your thoughts and uh, kind of reacting, and then we'll go to Jennifer Dingman, and then we'll close. Yeah, well, it's it, it's a really interesting discussion, um, and you know, it just got me thinking about the uh, you know some of the points that that were made um, about the uh, you know not just the sovereign citizens, but the the conspiracy you know, sort of world and, and, you know, the need to kind of take that into account when we're looking at, at, um, you know, preventing, you know, these things from, from turning into violence. And if I could, it, you know, I, it made me go back and, and look up an article that I read in a, a, a journal called Social Psychology. Um, this was back in 2017. And it, it, it talks about the, um, you know, sort of the need for uniqueness as being this driving force behind uh, behind the, the the conspiracy theories, which you know the sovereign citizen movement is obviously a, a, a big part of. And what really stood stood out to me in this article was this, and it, it's entitled "If for anybody who wants to see it, I, I know things they don't know." Um, it was published in 2017. There's a there's a quote um, from a, uh, a a researcher named Billings who. Um, back in 26, or, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, 19, I believe 1986 talked about that and talked about that this, the, uh, the role of the conspiracy theory sort of filling this need for uniqueness. And it gives the, you know, the believer this sort of immediate knowledge 
of you know and facts and 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 you know makes them become the experts even knowing things that the actual experts don't know and that's that's a, a very you know uh, a hard thing to, to to get ahead of and um you know, it's it, it really is is a, a interesting point about the the conspiracy theories, and you know, also the I, the internet as well. I think is just sort of amplified and become an amplification method of these beliefs um, for folks that sort of start into the the idea of of the conspiracies, and you know, it's very easy, I think, for society in general to just kind of you know, put those people in kind of a fringe category and say, you know, they're just kind of kooky and, you know, it's, they, those are weird beliefs and it's not the mainstream, but, you know, there's, I think that those, that need for uniqueness is need to be seen as an expert. It can lead into these, you know, really dangerous situations for people, not just not from a mental health uh, point of view, but for, you know, other people, you know, around them, if they decide like this gentleman, that all of a sudden they, you know, I, because I disagree with you, I have the right to kill you, kill on sight and all that. Um, so I think that, you know, sort of as a, a diagnostic tool to kind of help identify, you know, possible, possible uh, people who may commit these, these crimes or these acts of violence. I don't think that, we, I, I don't think that the conspiracy theory movement is, should be discounted. I think it's a, uh, sort of a really good indicator of what could potentially happen. Not to say that we should round up conspiracy theorists or just you know do anything you know to to that some when somebody hasn't committed any kind of crime, but using that to kind of think, hey, you know, maybe this is this is it's worth paying attention to. Um, you know, the 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 poor um, kid who was who was shot. Um, you know, through the door the other day, I, I I can't remember where that exactly where that happened off the top of my head, but you know, there's a whole there his family coming back and saying in the last few years that he's gone down these conspiracy theory holes and has really started embracing them. So, you know, I I don't want to just come right out and say that conspiracy theory subscription is 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 an indicator of of imminent violence, but I think that you know. It should be. It shouldn't be something that should be just absolutely ignored. Um, and you know, we turning it on to you know the, the college campus viewpoint, and from an emergency management standpoint, you know, and preparedness standpoint, it's very difficult, you know, to to do because college campuses are, you know, they're designed to be these sort of free thought processes and find you know new things and 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 do research and. And you know, embrace new ways of thinking, which can also lead to the the embracing of of conspiracy theory. So it's very difficult to to you know really track that on a college campus and just the the porous nature of a college campus. And it's you know we're, we're a state agency, we are a, a public institution. Anybody who wants can come on campus. Um, and it 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 definitely, I think, makes you know college campuses even even you know, bigger targets for anybody who would, you know, want to do these kind of kind of acts. But I definitely, I think that the idea that, you know, conspiracy theorists are just, you know, harmless in and of themselves, which largely is completely true. Um, you know, there is evidence that suggests that it may 
you know, in certain cases lead to people committing these acts of violence. So, um, Randy, this, this issue of uh, us being at the beginning of the beginning, you're at one of our great institutions, one of our California uh, universities that uh, that's, has multiple departments, uh, an enormous body of people that are moving through, 55, 60,000 people that you're responsible for. Um, for our smaller institutions who feel like, oh gosh, they just don't have the resources and everybody's so far ahead, aren't we at the beginning of the beginning and we're all really finding our way to put the structures and systems together to protect uh, those we serve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think to a large extent, we're playing catch up, you know, as we're, we're starting to really kind of get awareness of of the lack of infrastructure to you know help prevent these these sort of things i mean you know we we've in other shootings that have happened you know the the uh the, the michigan state shooting that happened just recently there was you know a, a real lack of you know monitoring capability and the ability for the the police who were there michigan state is a, is a pretty substantial police department but they they didn't have the when following the shooting there were um you know panic calls of their gunshots being fired over here gunshots being fired over there which is very common you know in active shooters that all of a sudden everything becomes a gunshot but there wasn't a real um uh you know coordinated or a well-coordinated um you know effort it was just the police would get the you know who are very you know kind of amped up because of the actual shooting or just responding in mass to different parts of the campus um, to respond to these reports. So, you know, that's something, you know, a, a monitoring system could have, you know, could have, could have prevented where, the, you know, the, the, the resources, the very limited resources of a campus police department could have been much better used had there been cameras in certain places or so, you know, shot spotter technology, you know, to, uh, technologies that exist everywhere. Um, you know, and the, 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 the Michigan State Police could have, you know, remained focused on the crime that had taken place and not chasing shadows around campus because people were reporting those. So, and I think that 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 level of infrastructure could be employed to probably most of the universities or big institutions, you know, in the uh, in, in the, the, the country that that you know, really doesn't exist. We're doing that, you know, at UCI right now, we're really looking at, we just conducted a, a, a full campus security assessment. Uh, as far as I know, the first of its kind at that scale, we looked at every single building on campus, we looked at physical security uh, and and other, you know, and, and including technology um, and how we can adapt that better. And we're gonna, you know, hopefully get a report back on that and start making those improvements. Um, but there are, you know, even an institution like UCI, you know, we still can always improve, you know, our capability to monitor what's going on on campus from, you know, a security standpoint and, um, you know, make the campus safer. Well, thank you, Randy. And uh, we, this has been an extended session, and we'll be covering more uh, next uh, next month. We're going to dig down into the scenarios, but I just want to commend you on your work in getting Stop the Bleed uh, rescue stations across uh, UCI and your son's Eagle Scout project successfully uh, doing that, and we want to commend you. I'd like to go to Jenny Dingman. Jenny, would you like to uh, make a comment before we close? 
Oh, thank you, Dr. Denham. Um, wow, that was really informative. I and uh, I never heard of this movie, but I'm anxious to watch it. That uh, Vicky was talking about. First of all, Vicky, I want to thank you for your kindness and generosity towards James. Um, I think. If this were the model across the country, it would really help a lot of healing processes. And I really believe that the little things that you're doing are gonna mean something to this guy. Um, I've worked, counseled a lot of people with our support group Pulse through the years. And there are definitely two different types of folks that are unhappy with guardianships. Um, some of them are indeed like James and they just fall down these rabbit holes because they don't have anywhere else to go, unfortunately. But then there's others that have family disputes over guardianships and, and those are, they're quite different, but they can also lead to the horror that could possibly happen. Um, I think we really need as a nation to look at support services for patients and families and find ways to understand what caregivers, what type of people the caregivers are. Um, I don't know if we could do some different coding through um, Medicare payments to kind of do some observation on the caregiver of these patients to watch them. So it doesn't, so things can happen gradually. Obviously this gentleman was not fit to be taking care of his mother. He had mental issues and he should have been treated for those. And I feel really bad for him and his mother. Um, I also think that we need to find a way to support patients and families better than we do through the healthcare um, providers in our country. So these things don't happen. And, and, and I do agree with everything that Randy said as well. Um, lastly, with unfortunately, with all the gun things going on in our country and more of this open carry in some of these different states, particularly the stuff that's going on down in Florida right now, I am extremely concerned with caregivers in the state of Florida, state of Texas and other places where the, the gun issue is just kind of one of these things and we're not providing mental health services like we should in our country. Um, but it was a really revealing story. And, and lastly, the movie, um, it, I was doing a little homework on it and it said it was based on some true facts. And I have heard stories through the years. There's a Facebook group about with people in it that have gone through this. They're not violent people. They're just very sad. They're in mourning. Their family members have died. They've not gotten to see them. For the major most part, it, it's usually a family issue with most of these people. It doesn't usually concern the state stepping in. So I just want to applaud you for going with this issue and educating about it. It is so very important and we need to protect our caregivers because they are at such a high risk in this day and age because there's so much misinformation out there. People don't understand things the way that they should and and it, it, there's just nowhere for people to go that have questions. And then they slowly will find other like-minded people that have questions and kind of go down these rabbit holes, which is very dangerous. Um, I just want to thank everybody for being here today. And um, we'll see you next month and God bless you. And please share the recordings. Thank you, Jenny. And we want to, uh, 
Jenny, we really want to thank you for your wonderful uh, work in patient safety and your steadfast commitment uh, over the years. You have just been a, you've been another one of our heroes, and we just want to thank you for that. Uh, we uh, have had so much interest in this topic. We are going to continue with workplace violence as we go forward. Uh, our next uh, program next month will be on more scenarios, including the targeted, effective targeted uh, uh, target of leadership, and then also the de-escalation things we can do from some of the high-frequency, uh, low-impact events that, uh, that that plague us and that we can convert. So we always want to kind of close with our, our, our battle cry, let's fight the good fight, uh, let's finish the race, and, and let's keep the faith. We just want to thank all of you because we know everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. Uh, until next time, we want to thank uh, Randy and we want to thank Vicki, who is actually speaking at another event right now, and Jenny for being live, uh, Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats will be in the extended session as well. He's in the ICU. Uh, God bless all of you, and we'll see you next month.